0: Hello, friends, and welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Brian Coney. Dr. Brian, how are you today? Doing
1: really well, Tim. I'm excited for our topic because it's a little nerdy. It's a (laughs) Probably a concept I think a lot of us just come to and we'll talk about this with presuppositions, whether Mm. we're from an evangelical background or a non evangelical background. And uh, I'm excited to talk about Pentateuchal authorship to maybe help us put some meat on the bones and, and have a deeper discussion of these things
0: yeah and so picking up if if you've just joined us for season two this is season two episode nine in this season we're talking about myths and mistakes people make in reading and interpreting the old testament and uh today we're going to talk about a mistake that people make and this might be a little bit surprising uh but the mistake that people sometimes make is that moses is the sole author of the pentateuch now as soon as i say that we've got to be very careful uh, because for some of you, you might say, well, wait a second. I've always been told that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and and is that challenging that? And we want to be very careful with what we're going to do today. And, and so I kind of want to lay it out, Brian, and then let's jump into it. Yeah, uh, sounds good. In, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, what it means for someone to author something. And, and particularly, mm-hmm. as we think about Moses being the author of the Pentateuch, we want to define what do we mean by that? Uh, And the view of Mosaic authorship has been dominant, we're going to talk about that for really most of uh, Christian history, except for the last 250 years. Uh, But there's a debate about how Moses could have wrote certain things about it. So we're going to dive into that debate. We're going to talk about what it means that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. uh, And and we're going to discuss some of the issues uh, involved in in this entire entire theme and this entire discussion. So, uh, Brian. Can can you help us just kind of situate our understanding here? What do we mean by authorship? Uh, why are we even talking about this? What does it matter if Moses was the author of the Pentateuch? Can you just help situate us here as we dive into the conversation? Sure.
1: So when we're talking about authorship of a book or in this series, a collection of books, right, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, we're talking about the person who primarily, or I think most of us assume solely uh, put pen to paper, or quill to parchment, or write whatever implement you may have had. And so, is the w- human party responsible for the text? Mm-hmm. Obviously, as Christians, we have some theology around the Bible. We're going to say it is they have nousos, God breathed. So, of course, God is the ultimate author there. But when we talk about mosaic authorship, we mean Moses is responsible for those first five books. And it is interesting if, like both Tim, you and I. Uh, we grew up in churches that would be considered evangelical churches. And so we're Mm -hmm. here, these are the books that Moses wrote. Fascinatingly, if you've never been outside that bubble, what you'll find is very few circles outside of evangelical Christianity think that Moses wrote these five books. And in (laughs) fact, there are many that would say, well, he had almost nothing to do with these books. Now what's at stake Uh, This is not like a tier one issue. This is going to make or break your view of the Bible. But this does have some knock-on implications. One of the biggest ones is the New Testament talks about these as the books of Moses. Well, in what way, I'm thinking specifically of like Jesus refers to them in this way, in what way are they the books of Moses? And I think undergirding this discussion and why we wanted to get into it is this does deal with some issues of, can we trust the text? Can Mm -hmm. we hold to traditional views intellectually? Right. I think a key part of this podcast and why we want to do it uh, just as a a macro idea is that we do think the Bible and theology should be intellectually defensible. We shouldn't just say, hey, just put your head in the sand. You need to just shut up and believe these things. We go, no look, God is a God of truth. And so we want to dig into these questions. We want to deal with the best evidence and come to the best conclusions. So Mm -hmm. that's a little bit about authorship and maybe why it matters. So let's go ahead, Tim, if this works with you, I want to set the table Mm -hmm. because you said in your introduction, uh, up until about the last 250 years, there's been a traditional view in both Judaism and Christianity. And that is that Moses was the author of, of the Pentateuch, right? The Torah, the first five books. About 250 years ago, though, we have some changes that start happening, especially in Western thought with the Enlightenment. With the rise of the Enlightenment, many presuppositions of theology and faith began to be challenged. And in biblical terms, we began having different disciplines to start examining the text. These are things like source, form, literary, or traditio-historical criticism. These are not criticisms as in the way of like doubting, necessarily, but as in critical thought. We started looking at the text and going, okay, let's challenge maybe some of these uh, assumptions or traditional views to see if they stand up. Now, there are many names in this uh, kind of trail of thought we could follow. We're going to try to not go into the weeds, listeners. So if you're like, <laughs> oh, is this going to be a nerd podcast? I mean we're nerds, but you're, you're here. Uh, but we'll try to keep it at a higher level for you. Um, so we're just going to mention one name, the kind of originator in some ways of this idea. And it's the Dutch Jewish philosopher, Benedict Spinoza. He came to the Pentateuch and he made three observations. And they're interesting observations. He didn't necessarily doubt Mosaic authorship. He just said, I want us to really ask and interrogate facts. And I, he says, I see three things. First, Moses is referred to in the third person, right? You can read from Exodus onward because Moses doesn't appear in Genesis, but every time Moses appears, he's referred to in the third person. It never says, I, me. So of course, some people do write about themselves in the third person, but that does feel kind of forced and weird. If Moses is the author, why doesn't he just say, I? We do have other examples of biblical authors when they enter into the text, uh, I'm thinking of Luke in the book of Acts. Uh, he's recording history, but at some point he begins saying we because he has entered into the story, even if he doesn't call attention to himself. John refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. Right. We have ways where authors might indicate that, yes, I'm in the story, even as I'm trying to be this like dispassionate narrator. Um, so Benedict Spinoza said Moses is always third person. So that's kind of odd. What's up with that? Second, he said. He said you know, Moses dies, spoiler alert, in the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) Who wrote that death scene? Did Moses like, I mean, and Moses is a prophet, but is he like a super prophet that could write prophetically what was going to happen to him after his death and close out the book of Deuteronomy? If not, do we have at least pretty easily there a case to say, no, someone else came and maybe added that in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then third, he said, look, There are odd names that show up at times. The biggest or rather most easy one to see is in the book of Genesis. A location is referred to as Dan. Now, it's called Dan because the tribe of Dan will eventually settle there. But in Genesis, that tribe doesn't exist. That man doesn't exist yet. Um, And so the question is, well, why is there a wrong name in Genesis? It would have been called something else rather than Dan at that time. So Spinoza kind of made these uh, observations. He said maybe someone else came along after the fact, like Ezra, and edited the text. But even then, right, we've moved away from a very strict Moses is the only author. Now we have other editors or other hands that maybe have come along and guided the text. So that kind of starts everything. Tim, uh, maybe you can help us pick it up here. Where do we go from Spinoza's kind of first observations of the text?
0: Yeah. So Spinoza makes these observations. And and of course, Spinoza wasn't alone. It's it's not as though people didn't notice like, oh, Moses, you know, Moses's death is described at the end of Deuteronomy. Th- these are things that people have understood, uh, but they weren't understood in an environment and in a time period where kind of uh, skepticism was so rampant. Uh, in other words, the Enlightenment gave uh, rise to this kind of notion that we're going to take capital R Reason, and we're going to basically sift everything through that filter. And so uh, it's not that these things weren't noticed, but as people consider them, especially in this era, uh, eventually an entire uh, theory is proposed and developed. And uh, of course, uh, we mentioned Spinoza, one more name we'll throw out there is just Julius Bellhausen. He was very important in the development of what became known as the documentary hypothesis, kind of more popularly known as JEDP. And That hypothesis basically uh, is a construct. It says, okay, not only is Moses not the sole author, but actually uh, we as modern scholars can come in and detect at least four, and depending on the version uh, that a particular scholar holds to, there might be you know many multiples of four, but at least four authors, the J author, the E author, the D author, and the P author. And of course, all of those stand for various things. We won't get into all the details there. Uh, But it's a construct where scholars say we can identify four different authors, uh, we can identify the time period in which they wrote. And the reason that they felt like they could do this and they felt like they were accurate is they said, well, if we divide up these four strands or these four different authors, we can detect, say, different language or different kinds of language. Uh, I mean, not Hebrew as a language, but different kind of style, different kind of grammar, different kind of names of God in particular in these different strata. Uh, we can detect different emphases, say the priestly strata, which is what P stands for, tends to fo- focus on cultic things. And so uh, the JEDP or the documentary hypothesis was proposed by scholars. and Brian, I I think you would agree with this is in large part in in its various forms, still regarded by secular scholarship as uh, the definitive authorship of the Pentateuch for non evangelicals. uh, They look at the text in some version of the documentary hypothesis still seems to be uh, the consensus. And of course, every scholar wants to give come in and give their own two cents to kind of adjust it or tweak it. but among non-evangelicals, they really adopt this as uh, as the way we understand the formation of the Pentateuch. And, and they would maybe not even use the word authorship, but the formation or the development of the Pentateuch as we have it. Uh, so that kind of brings us up to date uh the documentary hypothesis does uh so brian what are some what are some other points uh to consider here as we think about mosaic authorship and uh in a more kind of conservative evangelical view
1: right so depending on how exposed you have been to more of these scholarly debates listeners like this may have come as a surprise <laughs> that uh mosaic authorship is not the dominant consensus uh <laughs> in, in, within scholarship and Part of why we wanted to give this background is to show, look, over the past two hundred fifty years, as enlightenment has emphasized reason, we have we followed a lot of different theories, Uh, and the documentary hypothesis is a Tim, maybe you'd agree with this, a collective name under which there are many, many versions of how that actually plays out. Yeah, Um, yeah. But what we want to do is to show, like, look, we have this challenge to traditional. Uh, interpretations of mosaic authorship. And we don't want to, as we said at the beginning, or I said at the beginning, I don't want to put my head in the sand and just go la 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 la. But at the same time, I also want to challenge their interpretations and assumptions and go, all right, how do did we actually get this text? What are some key observations we can make so that we can have a, a defensible and hopefully correct view of the Pentateuch? So we want to list out a few kind of observations or points to consider, and then we'll start walking through kind of how, at least I, Tim, and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll give your view as well, how we might view the authorship question of the Pentateuch. So to start, we want to uphold the authority of scripture, right, Tim? We both view scripture very highly. Absolutely. Yeah. The Pentateuch never mentions an author. So this is an important point to start with. It never claims that it was written by Moses. It never makes a specific authorship claim. We do have several instances where it says Moses wrote something down. For example, Exodus 34, 27, Numbers 33, 2. That's actually maybe an interesting point that Moses is not the overall author, because why would you record that Moses wrote something down if he's writing everything down, if that makes sense? But... Just realize, as we were talking about who wrote the book, we aren't somehow violating uh, the text themselves. They don't claim an author. We'll deal with Jesus's words in a a moment because we do take that very seriously. Um, Mm. But we start there. Second, just like uh, uh, Spinoza said, Moses is often referred to in the third person in these stories. And most importantly, never is referred to in the first person. Spinoza was good uh, and maybe helpful to Note that Moses does die in the book of Deuteronomy and I don't think it really elevates him or the book to say that that is a prophetic vision. And in fact, we'll talk about this. I think there's good evidence to show that that is someone like Ezra that has come and included that, uh, as Spinoza has already said, anachronistic names do show up in the text. We should ask, well, why, why is this location called Dan in the book of Genesis when it wouldn't have been called that naturally? Um, We do want to observe that Jesus does say that these are the books of Moses. You can check it out in Luke 24. Uh, Jesus refers to the Torah, the Pentateuch, as Moses' works. Now, you could argue Jesus is just affirming that the culture thinks that Moses wrote those books. I'm going to say it's a little bit more. I I would say... tim this is maybe a a rabbit trail real quick but i find it interesting jesus is totally willing to go after the pharisees the sadducees on screwing up things in the law like he's not afraid to pick (laughs) fights he doesn't quibble over how they uh talk about the bible what books they have included i do find that significant now that is an argument from silence i'm Mm -hmm. making an argument based on what jesus didn't pick a fight about um but I do take it seriously that when Jesus says these are the books of Moses, yeah. Moses is connected to this somehow in some significant way. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, maybe in deference to the documentary hypothesis, we explicitly in the text do see that sources are used. Uh, Genesis mm-hmm. chapter 5 talks about a this is the scroll, right? Yeah. Um, which sets it apart as, hey, this is a separate document that is now being appended in. So yeah. these are some of the observations I want to make before we begin crafting our theory. Uh, Tim, did I forget anything or is there anything you want to add to kind of the observations before we begin crafting our theory of authorship?
0: Yeah, I, I want to just uh, piggyback off of something you said, Brian. So that last point, I think might come as a surprise. Uh, if you read mm, Genesis yeah. 5, it, it and this is often obscured in translations, uh, but it says something like this is the scroll of the generations of adam would be Mm -hmm. a semi-literal translation of that and uh in that phrase this is the scroll of actually is an indication uh, that the author of genesis was using something a physical document perhaps that was handed down uh so that there was obviously a pre-written source that was being used in genesis 5 uh, which raises the question is it possible that even for those who hold a primary mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, that we could say Moses did use pre-existing, pre-written materials uh, to help craft what ultimately became uh, the Pentateuch that we have? And so Mm -hmm. uh, that's just to say, we're not trying to, to add anything to the text. We're actually trying to take seriously how the Pentateuch itself tells us about its composition, uh, because it does have something to say about how it came about. So uh, take a look at that, uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with it, go take a look at Genesis 5 and uh, just check out your translation. Maybe check out several translations, and uh, you'll find something that maybe you haven't seen before in Genesis five one.
1: Yeah, what Tim said is very important to us. We do want to take the text seriously, and the text does indicate here maybe that a source is being used which is going to lead me into, uh, Tim, I don't want to speak for you here because we actually didn't (laughs) talk about this before we started recording. Um, when I think of authorship of the Pentateuch, I have four categories, so Mm -hmm. I'm going to lay them out. And then listeners, I want you to kind of be really thinking through this. Feel free to be critical. I mean, this is a key part is we want to engage our minds engage the best kind of reasons we can for authorship here. So, I divide authorship into four categories, not the J, E, D, and P, but rather pre-mosaic, mosaic, mosaic, post-mosaic, and a-mosaic. So what do I mean by those? Well, first, I think we have some pre-mosaic material in the Pentateuch. This is material that predates Moses, and Moses is compiling together for us. This is, I think, mostly the book of Genesis. So We just talked about it. Genesis 5 seems to be talking about a scroll that has been used to compile the stories. Certainly, Moses is not alive for any of the events of Genesis. Um, So would it stand to reason that maybe at least some of these, obviously God can reveal these things to Moses, but would it stand to reason that maybe he has sources that he's drawing from? Because see, in the story, we have someone that does appear in the book of Genesis who is educated, who is literate, and importantly, who lives in Egypt. His name is Joseph. Is it begging credulity to go, Joseph, it would stand a reason, I think, would have recorded some of the things about his family. Where have we come from? Because they are now, they are sojourners in the land of Egypt, even though he has an exalted position. Um, if Joseph did indeed put down material about his family, they would have been kept in the Egyptian archives. Moses grows up in the household of Pharaoh. He is also trained to be literate uh, and I would think he would have access. So especially I'm thinking Genesis five, when I see that he's reading a scroll that has these genealogies. That's where I think that might have come from, but that is a speculation uh, if it was Joseph, but I do say that there is some material, probably most of the book of Genesis is pre mosaic. So that's category one category two is mosaic or Moses. And I do think that, especially once we get to when Moses is in the story from the book of Exodus, all the way up to Deuteronomy accepting his death, Uh, I think we do have Moses being the primary hand. Uh, This is consistent with Moses being a prophet, communicating the words of God to the people. It's consistent with a lot of the themes we have there, that what is being told to the people of Israel is for them and their children after Mm -hmm. them. It makes sense that these would be recorded because God did not make a covenant with just one people. He didn't just get them out of Egypt and then that's it. No, this is the foundation. This is the trajectory for the nation going forward. So I I don't see any reason why Moses shouldn't be considered a likely candidate for be the author. If he was raised in the court of Pharaoh, he would be uh, able to be a scribe. That's not a skill that would be terribly common or as common as it might be today in the ancient world. So I'm not going to throw him out unless I have good reason to. So I have pre-Mosaic, Mosaic. I do have some post-Mosaic. So I do think we have some additions made right after the death of Moses, probably by Joshua. And this is, I do think, the death scene. Um, I I don't hold that Moses prophetically wrote his death. I I think it makes sense. Joshua clearly, or people during his time, clearly come in and write his story as well. So I think we have a good case that that's probably where the death scene came from. Um, And then lastly, we have a Mosaic. So this is going to be someone not at all during the time of Moses, but someone much later that comes in and edits. This is where I think you have the name changes because put yourself in time listeners. If I'm Mm -hmm. someone during the time of David, if I'm someone during the time of the exile, oh my goodness, the events of Genesis, right? We we go, oh, it's all in the past. Well, for them, it's still very far in the past. Mm-hmm. They might not know the ancient names anymore for the land of Canaan, for where things are. So names are updated to make sense for the audience. They would know where the tribe of Dan settled, but they might mm-hmm. not know the ancient name of that region. I think we also, and, and Tim, I would really love to get your thoughts on this. I think we have a very clear case that someone like Ezra, someone right at the close of the canon, came in and added Deuteronomy 34.10. Because Mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 34.10 talks about the fact that once Moses has died, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like him. Yeah. Just consider if that's... Moses writing about that. Hey, boy, he's got a big head. <laughs> um, and of course, no, one's arisen. You're still alive, dude. Of course, there's no one like you. If that's Joshua that puts it down again, same problem. There's been no time. This really reads like someone who is casting a retrospective eye back across the Old Testament, looking hmm. at the major prophets, looking at the minor prophets and going, none of them has arisen in Israel, like Moses, who got mm-hmm. whom God spoke face to face. And that then really sets up some really interesting things as we move to the New Testament. And again, yeah. have a prophet that God speaks face to face too. Anyway, so when I look at the Pentateuch listeners, to sum it up real quick, I have these four categories. I think some material, Moses is not the author, but he's the compiler. That's pre-Mosaic. I think Moses is the primary author of books two through five. I think there's some material added by Joshua or someone from Joshua's time uh, right at the end of Deuteronomy. And I think a scribe right at the end of the Old Testament period has also come through and done some editing work. So those are my four categories. Tim, tear me apart. Uh, What do you think of those categories or how would you put together the authorship of the Pentateuch?
0: Yeah, well, I'm not going to tear you apart, Brian. In fact, I'm going to try and come uh, (laughs) illustrate a little bit what you've said. Uh, But again, I want to say up front that both of us are coming at this from uh, a standpoint of inerrancy. We believe ultimately this is the word of God. And uh, but I'm I'm going to try and illustrate this uh, using a couple of different books, Brian. And uh, I'm just going to randomly pick one here. Uh, this this book you may have heard of it called "The Prophet and the Sage" uh, by Brian M. Koning. I don't even know unsolicited your name.
1: plug. I love it. Yeah.
0: But um, so here's here's what we may mean by this, okay? and and what i'm trying to illustrate is this is not something that's like oh conspiracy theory or oh like this is something mm-hmm. that should drop a bomb on our faith let me just explain how all of these things that we talked about are actually a normal part of the writing process all the way down to today uh so for instance pre-mosaic uh dr Bryan wrote this book intertextual connections between habakkuk and job uh so if you flip through this book, you're going to find a lot of quotations of material that's always already existed, namely Habakkuk and Job. Uh, And so there's an integration of that material that Brian didn't write, but he's including in something that he did ultimately write as the author. Uh, And there are, say, block quotations all throughout this book where he's citing other material that's already been written now we don 't look at this and say, "Well, Brian, you should have put the name of all the people uh, who who helped contribute to this no that's that 's what he does in the footnotes, of course but but we understand what we mean when we say, Well, Brian wrote this, even though he may have used pre existing material uh, hmm. that 's what we 're saying whenever Genesis five talks about a scroll or did the book of Genesis originate from Joseph, and then did Moses incorporate that into a larger document? That happens all the time. Uh, in almost any book that we have or would read, there's going to be pre-existing material that an author cites or quotes. Uh, And then mosaic authorship. I just want to say this, when we think of authorship, and I love how you uh, framed it earlier, Brian, we think of authorship usually in terms of uh, someone sitting down with a pen and a piece of paper and writing on that piece of paper. Well, even authorship as an idea uh, is something that we take for granted because we have pen and paper that we can sit down Hmm. and write with. Uh, But in their culture, writing was uh, much less available than it is now. You had to be skilled uh, and you had to be able to come up with the actual physical materials to write things down. So uh, even in the New Testament, and that's, you know, 1500 years at least after the writing of, of the the Mosaic time period, they had scribes whose job it was to create and to keep materials to write things down. Why? Because writing was something that was learned. It wasn't something everyone started in kindergarten. It was something that a particular group of people did. And so, uh, Brian, when I think about Moses, Moses uh, was the perfect person to actually write the majority of the Pentateuch. Yes, he had pre-existing material he could have incorporated into it, uh, but he was a scribe. He was someone who had a a full ride scholarship to the University of Egypt. Right? I mean, he uh, he was able to see all of the things. He knew the history. He had access to the materials. And so, I absolutely affirm that the prime candidate for writing of the Torah and the Pentateuch is Moses himself. But here's the thing: even if, even as we say that, uh, it's also true. That uh, Moses could have also trained another scribe, and think of this, especially in his old age, trained another scribe, a.k.a. his aide Joshua, who perhaps he used as an author, say, uses to, someone to transcribe a work or uses someone to help craft or frame materials. Uh, I think here, uh, Brian, of an example like Supreme Court justices or presidents, mm-hmm. yeah. they have speech writers, right? Uh, You know, the phrase axis of evil is a famous phrase from George uh, W. Bush. Well, George W. Bush didn't write that, uh, but he said it. And uh, we rightly say that uh, the president said, even if a speechwriter might have originated the material or, say, a Supreme Court clerk, some Supreme Court uh, justices are actually uh, willing to let their clerks author parts of their opinion that then eventually they go through and they give it the rubber stamp. Uh, But we understand that that doesn't render them not the author. Uh, No, they're just allowing, say, someone like Joshua to come in and write the ending of Moses' life. But of course, it still bears Moses' authority. Uh, And then the last thing, I'm going to use another book here to illustrate this last point, Brian, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, I'm doing a Hmm. Bible study right now with a group of guys. The Mortification of Sin was written by John Owen. Uh, But I have, in this Puritan paperback copy, an abridged and made easy-to-read version by Richard Rushing. Uh, I don't know Mr. Rushing, but I can tell you this. I'm thankful that he took the language of John Owen and he uh, brought it up into a modern parlance. He Mm -hmm. made it easy to read. He made some editorial changes. And, Brian, I'm sure you can uh, tell our listeners that even in your book that you wrote, it's going to have to go through an editor. Uh, yeah. At which point, I think this is the part that kind of spooks uh, people uh, the most, Brian. And I wonder if you agree, because the moment you start saying editor, we begin to think, oh, someone who comes in and makes changes, you know, and, we, you know, Da Vinci code kind of stuff where it's like, oh, later editors change the Bible. And, uh, and what I would say is uh, there's absolutely no evidence of that. But I believe that God can use an inspired editor, say Ezra to come in and with the same prophetic authority that moses had to come in and make certain clarifications to the text or even and this is a a deep dive we won't take today uh, even to bring the text into a modern hebrew script which of course moses did not have uh, Mm -hmm. as ezra was no doubt as a scribe copying the text and passing it down and preserving it I have no problem believing that the Holy Spirit could have inspired him to make things a little bit more clear uh for the generation that would ultimately receive it uh so I, my my whole point in going through those is as we think about these categories, these are not sort of out of left field or you know you kind of have to uh you know make you know make yourself look the other way these are common these are common methods to author books and in in, in the ways that we even do it today. In other words, this is common fair and has been common fair for a long time. And as we look to the Pentateuch, we don't have to put our heads in the sand and say, Oh, well, maybe Moses authored his own death before it happened. We can say no, this is the, the common ways. And even as uh, as we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, we know that he used human means to accomplish its authorship. And so mm-hmm. to sum it up, Brian, I would say, the authority of the scripture ultimately derives from the Holy Spirit. But I believe when Jesus says the law of Moses or Moses said, he meant it. Uh, I think that the authority of the Pentateuch comes from Moses, uh, but I have no problem thinking that perhaps he used Joshua as a scribe to help him in compiling the materials, or that there are p- potentially many pre existing materials that he incorporated into it. Uh, And I have no problem saying that an inspired editor came at a later time and said, okay, uh, under the inspiration of the scripture, we're going to update perhaps some of the language uh, that's used here. All of those things I think are well within a conservative evangelical understanding of inspiration and inerrancy, uh, but they also help us to understand how we have the text today in its current form.
1: Yeah, I think those are all terrific points, Tim, and I, I would echo that. That when we think of the term inerrancy, listeners, let's make sure we're we're not like limiting ourselves on that term. I, th- I think we often have a very simplistic view of what inerrancy means, that it only covers like the pen and the paper of that one person, but that clearly is not historically accurate. We even have in the New Testament, uh, right, uh, people that are being copyists as letters are being dictated. Um, this is in no way, shape or form is going to, I think, affect our view of inerrancy and and what God can do with the authority of scripture. Um, One last point, I also kind of want to throw in Um, this, I think this view we're presenting here, I think is a much more defensible, like conservative evangelical view of the authorship of the Pentateuch. I I also want to say we're not burying our heads in the sand and ignoring the documentary hypothesis. Uh, And We won't go too far down this rope, but uh, (laughs) that theory itself also has a lot of critical issues. And these are issues being brought up not just by conservative scholars, but even those within non-evangelical circles. I'm thinking uh, Dwayne Garrett would be a conservative scholar who has really written some excellent work on why the documentary hypothesis doesn't actually stand to reason. But you also have non-evangelical scholars like uh, R.N. Wybray or Mm -hmm. R.H. Wybray. One of those two, my apologies. Uh, but he wrote The Making of the <laughs> Pentateuch, uh, and he's not a evangelical by any stretch of the imagination. And he just says this theory makes zero sense. Yeah. Um, so this view we're trying to present, we want to say, look, this makes good logical sense. It makes sense of the data. Moses is raised as a member of Pharaoh's court. That doesn't mean he's a prince of Egypt sorry, DreamWorks, um, <laughs> but right. He would have been trained to be a scribe, to be someone who would be fluent in the text, who would have access to the records. And, and so we go, look, it all signs point to this being a very logical, very sensible theory for mm-hmm. authorship. So this is something I was excited to talk about. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, and I hope you come away from this going, you know what? There might be questions about the Bible, about authorship, Maybe I'm a little bit uncomfortable raising them because I don't know how Mm -hmm. to deal with them. I hope you know that there are solid and true answers to your earnest questions. And so I hope maybe in some small way this this has uh, leaned into that and given someone some solace.
0: Well, Brian, I just want to echo that final statement because these are the kinds of things that, you know, if I'm coming to the book of Genesis to have my quiet time. That authorship or where that came from may not be on the forefront of my mind. Uh, but eventually, these are the kinds of questions that, if we're careful readers, we're going to notice these things as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Brian, at least for me, as I have people uh, both in class or in church who eventually come to see these issues uh i i I want to speak to them for just a moment because sometimes it can be a crisis moment like oh I, I never even considered there could be a scribe or you know uh for instance, an amanuensis like you mentioned at the end of the book of Romans or whatever and this goes back to one of the very first episodes we did, the problem of Sunday school eyes a- as we come to the text uh we we need to mature and we need to grow and uh and I think ultimately it's okay if we have some ideas about the text that have to be torn down in order that better ideas uh, can take their place and as long as we come to it uh, from a perspective of submitting ourselves to the word of god and saying and, and i'll say when i preach when i preach out of the the pentateuch i say moses said i, I have no problem saying that uh, yeah. but just understanding that in terms of uh in terms of authorship we just have to be careful to define what do we mean by author and again once you begin to think about it and this is my experience brian once people begin to think about it it's like oh well yeah of course this is how it likely happened uh the thing is we just never kind of stopped to to consider it so uh dr brian thank you so much uh, for giving your time today. And, uh, and listeners, uh, if you're interested in this, we only have so much time in, in any single episode, but we'd be glad to come back and revisit this and, and, uh, and provide anything that you'd want uh, in terms of additional content. So we hope it's been helpful to you today. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on this journey. And uh, we hope to see you next time. But of course, until then, stay cool and stay old.